Hello and welcome to the Paper Chain Podcast, uh, Series 2, Episode 10, the final episode of the series. Um, I'm not going to keep you too long um, because this is a long episode. This is a big episode. I've got three authors that I chatted to, Ely Williams, Harry Gallen and Rachel Connor. Um, They're all fantastic in their own right and they've got so much to say about writing and reading uh, and everything. So let's go into the episode as quickly as we can. If you've never listened to the show before, here's how it works. Every episode I interview an author or authors um, and they tell me about their writing, they tell me about creativity and at the end of the episode they read a brand new piece of work that's been inspired by a prompt set by another guest. Simple. Uh, You're going to get three brand new short stories in this episode. How lucky are you? Um, But before we get to that, I've got a couple of books to recommend. The first of which is um, Quartier Perdu by Sean O'Brien. So Sean O'Brien's stories are all lit with the unmistakable hue of the Victorian Gothic. From the rantings of a deranged psychiatric patient to the apparition of demons swarming into a remote rural railway station. Solemn oaths are broken and need atoning for. Minor transgressions are met with outlandish curses. So Sean O'Brien is an amazing poet and a brilliant short story writer and Comma Press have put this book out. Um, It's well worth a read. Check out commapress.co.uk to find out more about it. Do, do buy this book. It is phenomenal. And the next book I'm going to recommend is Only Killers and Thieves, which is a really stonking debut novel. It's brilliant. Um, It's by Paul Howarth um, and it's uh, an Australian story. Tom McBride and his brother Billy return to their isolated family home to discover that their parents have been brutally murdered. Haunted and alone, their desperate search for the killers leads them to the charismatic but deadly Inspector No One and his Queensland native police, an infamous arm of colonial power whose sole purpose is the dispersal of indigenous Australians in protection of settler rights. Um, it does everything a novel wants, uh, you want from a novel. Um, it's got a recommendation on it from Willie Vlorton, who uh, is one of my absolute favourite, favourite authors. Um, Pushkin Press have published this, so find out more on pushkinpress.com. Uh, and guys, I'm just going to leave you in with the episode. Uh, we start off with Rachel Connor, who I chatted to the other week, um, and then you'll have a little bit of music, and then we'll go into Ely Williams and Harry Gallen. Thank you. Enjoy the show. just about to work on an MA course as well. And, oh, fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, so it's, really, it's really good. It's been developing really quickly. Um, lots going on, actually. It's really good. Yeah, yeah and, and you've previously also worked for Arvon as well, haven't you? You've done right. courses for them. I was, it's interesting because I was at um, Edinburgh Uni talking to some students uh, last week yeah. and one of the questions that came up on one of the other panels that I was watching was about the sort of value of a creative writing course and oh. I'm guessing you must feel quite passionately about them 
yeah it's a, it's, it's a real debate actually then there's a long-standing debate about you know can you teach creative writing and um well i think it depends what what it's for you know can, mm. can you teach creative writing can you teach students to become you know best-selling novelists well the answer is no really but um i think the value of creative writing is beyond that you know there's sort of there's real values around reflection um self self-knowledge evaluation of your creativity you know actually sort of putting a creative practice into into motion i think that's really important so there's lots of reasons why creative writing is a good thing to study but also you know i think there's a lot of cynicism around it and um you know some sort of thoughts that they become a bit of a machine you know that sometimes students come out they're kind of churned out like it's like a factory you know that that students sort of write in the same way and, and all of that stuff um, yeah I, I don't really agree with that <laughs> no I don't necessarily do either I there was um some I can't remember who it was did a real sort of hatchet job on that novel um Ponty didn't they a couple of weeks ago and mm. one of the things that they criticized in the novel was that it read what was it, it read like a uh, a UEA uh, novel yeah. I mean she is a UEA graduate but still That's like it, it, yeah. I don't I don't know if I necessarily by that no i'm i'm no i'm not sure either and uea is the one that people talk about you know that, that yeah. all, the, all the all the writers all the graduates sound the same um we you know we just we just teach students how to think creatively <laughs> and critically and how to sort of use their creativity in their everyday life and you know the fact that they reflect on their creativity i think is a really good thing um it's very very good self-development and you can tell the students who've done that because they come to you know, evaluative sort of essays at the end of their course, and they're way more equipped to reflect on their experience than than the literature students who haven't necessarily done that as part of their course. So, you know, for me, that's a real value, actually, regardless of of the quality of their work, which actually is pretty good. We've just had our first cohort. um, They they haven't actually graduated yet, but we had our the launch of their anthology. So it's the first time it's happened. And it was amazing. You know, they produced some brilliant work. They organised a launch and, and you know, did a brilliant job and it was great to see them sort of rise to the occasion and, you know, do something that they would do that, that would be meaningful in the outside mm. world as well, you know. So it was good. Very celebratory. That's, that's good. And and I guess because you set the, the course up or, you, you you know, you, you had a huge part in that, you get to sort of dictate part of the curriculum, I'm assuming, like the, the what's read and what's discussed and things like that. How, how do you approach something like that? Absolutely. No, I mean, we do. We, we can kind of choose to, to use whatever we do. We want to really. Um, so how do I approach it? Well, the, the kind of the, the, the curriculum design is quite is quite important. You know, what do what do we want the students to be able to learn? So those principles are kind of embedded You know, even before the students arrive. That's all in place. And in fact, we've just sort of even though we've only been going three years, we've actually just refined the degree even further. Mm. So we're constantly looking at, you know, what do students need, talking to students about what they want to do, what they think is valuable. And that kind of feeds into the process. So, for example, when we started out, we just did a module on fiction and a module on poetry in the first year. And now we're sort of opening that out to include scripts and nonfiction, travel writing, autobiography, all of that kind of stuff. So that in the first year, they're given a much broader spread of different forms to work with. So they can then kind of choose. They have more tools in their toolkit, basically. So that's that. that. And then the texts we use, you know, we, we tend to do it's classic in all creative writing departments you know we're, we're looking at principles of fiction we need to think about character characterization so we choose you know short stories or extracts from novels that would 
you know, illustrate good practice and use those as models and, and then get the students to talk about them, pull them apart, critically analyse them and then use those to sort of feed into their own creative work as well. So that can vary, the text can vary a lot actually and sometimes it just, you know, sometimes it's just what I've just read that might be really useful, sometimes it's sort of something really classic that you, know, you need them to, to read. Yeah, what's, what's been like the, to the most interesting story to teach that's a bad question but <laughs> has there oh. been like a particular story or novel that, that the students have like really latched on to um well, one one novel we have used is uh sanjeev sahota's ours of the streets which is his first novel so he was sanjeev was he was um shortlisted for the man booker with his second novel but this we're, we're using his first one because it's set in yorkshire and it, it's quite contentious in that it basically the, the, the central character is a suicide bomber or a potential suicide right. bomber we never quite know so it really gets them talking and he's excellent on dialogue really good on characterization the students get really fired up and Sanjeev came to talk to the students you know give some lectures so they kind of make a meaningful link with the mm. author which is, is always really valuable. So we're, we're always trying to sort of, you know, make that connection between what the students are reading on the page and, you know, real life writers yeah. and, and what they're doing, what they're up to. So that, that always works really well. That is, I mean, that is really, really invaluable stuff. And do you find, I mean, I was I was going to come on to this anyway, but like, I mean, so you're teaching in, in Leeds, you're doing events at the, like the Northern Short Story Festival. Do you find that the North is still a little bit, missed out in terms of authors and presence like is it harder to find an author to come and speak to students in Leeds it isn't actually because we've got a really vibrant northern you know sort of literary life um, mm. we've got so many writers who are willing to do that so for example I'm doing I'm hosting something for National Writing Day at the end of June which is run by First Story which is an oh, organization that primarily yeah, yeah that primarily works with with schools but they're kind of broadening their reach and and sort of diversifying a little bit and so National Writing Day it was it was run for the first time last year and we did a really successful panel and this year we've kind of gone even bigger so we've got Melvin Burgess um, who is actually based in, in Yorkshire and um, Malika Booker who's a brilliant Leeds based poet of course Jacob Ross who was in London has now moved to Leeds so it feels if we have some really top writers here and you mentioned Ben Myers you know he's just yeah. down the road Hebden Bridge itself is a bit of a, a locus for <laughs> uh, for artistic expression and, yeah. and you know there are more writers than you can shake a stick at so you know we do we do pretty well and, and actually if we have events you know we we're sort of yeah, we're, we're lost. We're, you know, we're, we're spoiled for choice actually in terms of who we can invite. I guess the focus is just very different from London, and, and yeah. I'm really keen to kind of preserve the northern identity. And so, you know, so for example, in, the, in National Writing Day, Arvon, we work, we're working in partnership with Arvon for that, and we were given the option of sending up a London-based writer, and Arvon would pay. But I feel very strongly we need to keep it Yorkshire-based. I think that's really important, you know, to kind of promote that. Yeah, I, th North. I think that's hugely important. I mean, because mm. because the alternative is, I mean, especially if you if you look at it from like a student's perspective, you know, a student looking at authors just coming up from London, it 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 still makes it still paints a picture that London is sent the centre and where you need to be, and it 
it just keeps that myth going, doesn't it? Exactly, it does. And also it sort of connects with, you know, the growth of independent sort of publishers as well. Yeah. So that, that idea that publishing is, has diversified, there are lots of publishing opportunities in the north. And it, it just helps to kind of send that message that it's possible to do that in a, in a regional sense rather than, yeah, London kind of being dominant. So yes, it's it's you know it's it's a positive thing, and and lots of our students stay in Leeds afterwards as well. So it kind of makes things more realistic for them, gives yeah. them connections with with the city, with the industry, with writers, you know, which hopefully some of them will will exploit after they leave as well. Yeah, I mean, I know there's obviously there's, there's quite a lot of, of of publishers up north, and other stories relocated up to Sheffield, didn't they? And yes. you've got Dead Ink, and you've got Comma Press, who are fantastic, um, yeah. and people like that. Is there any? Are there any based in Leeds themselves that so we may you want to yeah, shout about? <laughs> yeah, the main one in Leeds is People Tree. Pr- Press, so it's people p p double e p a l, um, uh, and they course, do amazing. Yeah. So they really promote sort of they've got yeah they basically promote black and Asian writers, mm. and that's really really important as well. So so they're phenomenal. So Jacob, in fact, Jacob Ross that I mentioned is you know he is he is published by People Tree, and I think that's one of the reasons that he's kind of moving up to to sort of forge you know because he has a really good relationship with 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 them. So. Um, so they're, they're the ones, really. We've also got Blue Moose Books. Um, oh, of course you have, Blue Moose. Hebden yeah. Bridge itself, actually. So they're another one to, to shout out about. So, you know, all across, that, there's a kind of band across the north, you know, we're going from Manchester <laughs> across to Leeds. Um, it, yeah, it's really good. And, and increasingly, universities are, you know, setting up presses as well, primarily, I think, to, to kind of get their students' work out there and, and the, there's the work of staff out there as well. So, for example, Edge Hill University, which is based in further west sort of towards liverpool have their own university press as well so they they publish their students work which i think is phenomenal you know it's really excellent they've been going quite a while but it's something that we aspire to at leeds beckett as well it'd be amazing to have a you know a platform to, to get the students work out there um i mean speaking of sort of platforms to get uh, to get work out you've you've done a lot of different things in terms of writing like a lot of the time I talk to people who've had just sort of one they do one thing they're a novelist or they're a short story writer but you've published a novel with uh, with Crocus you've written quite a lot of short stories um, you've also had a, a radio drama with the BBC as well haven't you and yeah, yeah. and what I'm wondering is when you when you sit down to write something do you think about that form first or is it something that you decide on once you think about the story you want to tell it usually emerges from the story. I mean, the, the radio drama was, was different in that I was specifically working, I was already going to, mm. that was going to be a radio drama. So it was working with the producer to craft the story to suit radio. And actually radio drama is it's just like writing a film script. Not that I've ever written a film script, but I'm, you know, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a tiny film and the structure is, is, quite, is quite important. The, setting up the story questions immediately you know the, the first the first sort of paragraph of the script is is really key in terms of keeping your listener captive so that's that in that case that the, you know the form dictated the development of the story but generally with fiction what tends to happen is that I'm, I'll maybe start classically I'll start off thinking oh this is a short story and it becomes something much bigger and there's a lot more texture and depth to it that, that means that it's really a novel shaped project and vice versa you know I've I've had sort of things that I've I thought would be longer 
and actually so at the moment I'm working on a, a novella which is is kind of has kind of condensed quite dramatically from the novel that it was <laughs> in in draft form so you know just I think it it, it, it kind of works itself out in the storytelling really um, you know I need to kind of dig into the characters I think to to see where it's going if that makes sense yeah no that totally makes sense so, so you're writing so what you're writing at the moment started off as a sort of novel length work and now it's been pared back down to a, a novella yeah yeah that's so that's this summer's work you know sort of vacation yeah. <laughs> vacation break um is to is to kind of i think i have a good idea now about of what i need to do to it so it's really really and, it, and you know i'm a fairly um economical writer i think but this needs to be paired right back uh, stripped right back to to its bare bones and it's definitely a novella length thing um, the other thing that I'm writing is another novel as well, which will sort of is like next in the queue, and that did start off as a short story, and then there's way more to it than than, than that. So that's that's kind of the other the other side of the spectrum. <laughs> Do you know roughly where in the novel the short story is going to fall? Like, is it just did did you writing and go? this needs to continue or is it something that you wrote and thought oh this is in the middle of a story um it's so the short story the original short story will probably be the beginning of the novel so in a way it's a continuation of of that whether or not so that's at the moment i mean it's very early stages at the moment mm. whether it, whether it will stay as the opening of the novel is another question um sometimes what happens is that i'll start off as a short story so that so the novel that i was talking about the, the, the novel that's going to become a novella when it started as a novel that also started as a short story and what happened was that the bit that i wrote never made it into the draft of the novel oh, okay um, so you know in a sense the short story was the kind of scaffolding for yeah. it um so it's a starting point as long as there's a starting point it's fine so we'll see what happens with this this other novel in progress whether you know whether that chunk of the story will remain certainly the characters will definitely stay but i think in writing that story it's clear that you know those characters need more attention so <laughs> was it a similar thing that happened with sister wives then or Yes, it was actually. So Sister Wives started off as a, actually a piece of flash fiction. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> um, and again, nothing, you know, and, and, it, and I kind of, um, the flash fiction was a very specific time and place. But um, in, in Sister Wives, in writing Sister Wives, it sort of emerged from that piece of flash fiction. And then I decided to shift it to a kind of quite a nebulous no no specific location is mm. it uk is it the us no one really knows so it's kind of this slightly strange otherworldly location which for some readers is great and some readers find really frustrating but it, but in the flash fiction that originally started it off it was um it was a definite sort of uh, it was set in utah in um yeah in a sort of polygamous um community so it was a very specific place yeah just thinking about um in terms of the story that you wrote for um exit earth the 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 the, the winning story that you <laughs> wrote for exit earth um where did that one uh where did that stem from because the the other things that you've written aren't particularly science fiction they're not particularly sort of dystopian they've not got that air to them is writing this kind of fiction that's in exit earth is this something that's something you don't do normally or do you sort of just spread across genres a lot yeah I it's really interesting I would not consider myself to be a dystopian writer at all and um so where it came from where the story came from was I was sort of browsing you know as you do on the internet and came across 
the website which which talked about careers that would be ubiquitous in 2023 or something mm. you know sort of kind of in the future but not too far in the future and one of them was a digital death manager so someone who would curate someone's life um the thinking is that by 2023 we'll all have much more logging of our lives you know everything will be logged uh which i think to some extent depending on your age and your generation that happens now so yeah. teenagers on snapchat you know in a way that is a kind of life logging except that it's it's very transient you know it's not it's not it's not kept it's not retained mm. but life logging is a thing you know people have these cameras on their heads that log log their lives can't think of anything more tedious than having to curate your life log footage but that's the idea is that everything you know everything will become recorded digitized and so we'll all have this masses of material that will need to be sort of taken care of plus issues around digital estates you know that we own we own material things that we write a will for but increasingly we're owning digital stuff as well you know our spotify playlists or um you know our online books or you know whatever it is that plus our online profiles so this will become a thing you know people will be hired to manage this and so that's where that came from um so I, by definition it was obviously set in the future um so i set it in a kind of an imagined future but not too far in the in the in the distant future yeah. so not really science fiction it's kind of you know it, it it's it's a situation that isn't occurring now but it's not it's it's easy to imagine that it would happen quite soon and i think in some ways the technology is already there it's already happening so that's where that came from and that one very clearly emerged as a short story actually that was always going to just be a story a short story um so that that's that was interesting in terms of i had a very clear structure of how i wanted to work um am i a dystopian writer no however <laughs> i so enjoyed that process that interestingly i think i would quite like to sort of pursue that further and in fact the the story that i'll be reading is again set in the near future so oh sort of, interesting yeah so hey. it's sort of um yeah <laughs> it's, it's kind of inspired me to stay with that yeah. Excellent. You, you did a good segue then. That was really yeah, good. Yeah, I did. Because <laughs> I was going to say, you, uh, I'm guessing you wrote the um, the story for Exit Earth based on their call out. So is, was that right? Or? No, I didn't. I didn't oh, okay. it. And then I saw the call out and I thought, oh, and I, I, nearly did, I nearly didn't send it because I said, oh, that's for dystopian stories. I don't write dystopia. And I thought, hang on, Exit Earth. And I read the blurb a little more closely. And actually what they're interested in is the condition of being human. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's yeah. about being human. So I was like, actually, this could be a really good story for that. It might be quite an interesting take on, on this. You know, they might not, you know. I was thinking they'd get lots of sci-fi stories and mine isn't sci-fi, definitely isn't sci-fi. So I just sent it off on a, on a whim. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where that came from. So it wasn't a response to the call at all. Oh, interesting. I, re I, I really, just reading it, um, I read it again today and like just reading it, it really feels like it just matches up so perfectly with the with the themes and it's just oh, I love that story. It's brilliant. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, do you then... I mean, do you do you set prompts for your students to write from at all? Yes, I do. Um, so they can be of various uh, media. So sometimes, you know, visuals, images, uh, sometimes video. So I, I quite like Vimeo. There's some, some really good sort of stylized, you know, video prompts that or videos that, that maybe last five, five minutes that make really good prompts for stories. Um, sometimes random words, you know, you know, sort of just 
give them a series of words and, and get them to connect them together. Sometimes, um, yeah, just a sentence that they have to finish, you know. So it just it varies. It depends on. I quite like to, to, to alter and vary it. Sometimes I use objects as well. That's quite quite useful. Like bring objects in. Yeah, bring objects in. That's quite good for characterization. You know, who does this belong to or whatever. You know, that that kind of thing. So so that's good. So how how was using the prompt market forces? <laughs> Oh, it was tough. <laughs> I was like, oh no, really? I don't know who gave it to you. <laughs> I don't know where the prompt came from, but it, you know, I, I really, yeah, I struggled with it a bit actually. Um, and so what I did was, yeah, I sort of, well, I think I, I hope that I was creative <laughs> with the prompt. We will see. But I think some of it, in some ways, what I found was that, and maybe because I struggled with the prompt, I found that what I did was I sort of defaulted to familiar patterns of writing so i don't know if that plays out well in the story or not but again i use a world that we can't, maybe can't quite access too easily you know it's not quite clear which historical period we're in it's not immediately obvious perhaps that we're in the future and um so in some ways it, it ties it ties in with the, the story for exit earth and in some ways it, it draws on other stuff that I've written as well. So other worlds that I've written in other, other pieces, other stories. So it sort of brings those together. Interesting. Would you like to read the story now? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, so from the, the prompt market forces, I've called, I've called this the souls of dead trees. The souls of dead trees. For years, it has been locked in a trunk and hidden in the hollow of the altar bundles of blank paper tied with raffia. Sister Florentina, on her knees in the chapel, is pulling on the knots, trying to wrest it free. It won't give. It is tied too tightly, and anyway her fingers are shaking. She has dreamed so often of this, of liberating the paper finally from its hiding place, of running her fingers over its surface remembering how she loved that sensation as a girl, smooth as silk and the potential to contain multitudes of words, of thoughts, her actions and her dreams. The dark gathers in the chapel. The bells of Compline have long died away and the others will be moving through the halls by now, preparing to go to their cells. No one will imagine she is here, although if she were discovered, she would be pulled into Sister Immaculata's office and asked questions she would find difficult to answer. Florentina feels the weight of the guilt at the thought of the older woman's face curled into anger. This place of music and silence has been a sanctuary for her, even when all this time she has carried a sense of its transience that somehow she could not be allowed to stay. Now the time has come she realises the richness of the routines here, scrambling for her habits at the wake-up bell, her place in line behind Sister Margarita in chapel, the psalms that have enriched her life like a grace note. It weighs heavy on her, what she's about to do. Love balanced as though on old kitchen scales, the competing loyalties like brass weights. On one side, her desire to stay, on the other, a sense of loyalty to family, to duty. Florentina lifts a sheaf of paper to her face. It smells musty of the old places where water used to gather, pools to swim in, 
a stream in the heart of a copse, with afternoon light falling on it like a benediction. She closes her eyes and sees someone looking at her, her child self, looking through the haze of memory. The breeze riffles the young girl's skirt. She is playing a game with her mother and her face is masked by the tree trunk. Even now, Florentina remembers its texture against her cheek. When, later, she discovered that one of the pages of the book she was reading had been at one point spark, just like this, she recoiled, unable to reconcile the roughness on her skin with the smoothness of the paper she loved to rub between her fingers. From her cell, Florentina has brought a single square of cotton, the only decorative thing she has been allowed to have on her chest of drawers. Not that it matters, she won't be there to miss it. She unfolds the fabric and places the paper in the centre. It will provide good camouflage. She can't risk being snared by spies. On the open market, this package would be worth a lifetime's bread ration. There's just enough light from a thin moon for Florentina to see her way through the chapel. At the entrance, she heaves on the door latch. This is the last time she will feel its weight, the bulk of the timber that has separated her for so long from the outside. The alleyways are narrower than she remembered. Florentina traces a route with her fingers, the rough stone a braille map for the way, recalling some buried memory the route she memorised years ago, one she has rehearsed most weeks in her head in case she ever came to need it. Right at the pharmacy, left at the baker's and around the side of the schoolhouse. At the end, she should reach an intersection of wider cobbled streets. Instead, she finds herself at the mouth of a square. The night markets. They heard rumours up the hill. During recreation time, the sisters would whisper to each other about what might be sold there, but she assumed they were just that, rumours. For a moment, Florentina feels winded by the activity and the noise. She stands at the edge, off-centre, her breath, her breath jagged. There is that familiar constriction in her throat, the sense of her body not quite fitting the space it occupies. Had she missed a street and approached it from the wrong angle? The stalls line each side of the square, draped with fairy lights that illuminate the handmade goods, all contraband, fabric and carved statues, sandals woven. The traders are dressed in dark colours with hoods that would disguise them in a raid. There is food for sale too. She smells roasted nuts and cardamom, and meat that makes her stomach contract with longing and the trace of long ago feasts. It has been so long. Somewhere in the middle of the marketplace, two monkeys run amok, squealing at each other in their chase. There is a smell of urine, life lived openly on the streets. The street she needs is a narrow one. Florentina remembers that her landmark is a green light burning in the window of the bookshop on the corner. She needs to turn there. The doorway was pointed out to her once by a sister when they were out doing errands. There is a marking in the top right-hand corner, a spiral carved inside a stone. She stands on the threshold and takes a breath. Inside the shop, music drifts from the back, a blast of guitar, and she feels it resonate in her belly. 
it's a shock to hear a different kind of music, anything other than that she's used to, the sweet, clear voices echoing through the chapel. The proprietor is standing behind the counter as she imagined he would be. He looks up when he hears her enter. He is a big man, wide in the chest, a paunch that is just visible under his shirt. His sleeves are rolled up and they reveal forearms with dense black hair. He frowns when he sees her, turns to switch off the sound and swivels to face her. She sees herself in his eyes, a woman who is still young but whose body is obscured by her robe, obscured too by the gloom of the shop. If it were light, he could see her skin flushed from the effort of getting here. You must be from up the hill. His voice is brusque, a statement rather than a question, and she feels it like an insult. Then she remembers that he has what she most needs, powers of exchange, alchemy. She nods. Run away then, did you? Florentina feels an intense fluttering in her belly, fear that she's misunderstood. She wants to explain why she has come and why this transaction matters. I have something to sell. Oh, you do? He's toying with her, trying to wrong-foot her. Florentina sticks to her resolve. She approaches the counter and places the cotton bundle in the middle. She feels the relief in her arms and only then realises the physical effort it has taken to get there. I know what it's worth, she says. She's amazed by her own words, her courage. The proprietor unwraps the parcel. His hands look like they would be soft to touch and she's surprised. She feels a sharp desire to touch them and see. Fingers that might play a musical instrument. She looks away and into his face. She knows that after so many years, like a seasoned card player, he will have learned to mask his responses. For a few moments he says nothing, simply looks at the stacks of paper in front of him. Once, his glance flicks across to her, but she finds she is unable to read what is there. She wonders if he knows how much he's talked about, the information whispered through secret portholes. Not the finest grade I've seen, he says. He sniffs. I'll need to weigh it before I make you an offer. Can you do that now? The words come out too quickly and she sees the flicker of amusement in his eyes. Yes, I can do it now. You women must have run out of food up there, eh? She thinks of her mother, surrounded by a plastic container that keeps her breath separate from the rest of the world. The woman who raised her, kept alive in a bubble of unconsciousness. I'm not going back, she says, not to the convent. She bites her lip and feels a surge of blood to her face. He hasn't noticed. He's bending to take something from the cupboard, lifts it onto the counter. A set of scales. The bowl is metal, like the one her mother had when she was a child. She wonders in that moment what happened to it. What happened to all their things? The proprietor picks up the top sheaf of paper. He lifts it, just as she did earlier, to his face. Is it instinctive? Does he smell the same things she did, picture the same watery spaces? His expression gives nothing away. There's something keen about it, though, something inquiring. He sighs, and she thinks she hears delight, perhaps even longing. He puts the paper onto the scale. Florentina tries to read his face, watches a frown pass over it. 
There is something performative about it. But she knows already she will take whatever price he offers. She could get more if she went elsewhere, if she tried her luck with the other merchants dotted inside the city limits. But her mother's state is critical. She's running out of time. And he will already have a buyer in mind. These are the forces she is gambling with now. For the price of secrecy and security, she will receive a sum that will be swallowed up by the cost of medicines. Florentina wants the exchange to be over now. She is thinking about where she will shed her robe. In the park, perhaps, or behind a shrub in the graveyard. Underneath, the clothes are dark and simple, the well-cut, clean shapes of those she arrived in before she was ordained. She might bury it under a tree, knowing that in some future time it will be a longed-for thing, a thing to be handed down, an artefact, a symbol of some spiritual legacy. When she looks up, the proprietor is pushing a plastic card into the slot of a machine on top of the counter. It takes only seconds to activate. He presses eject and slides it across to her, and she picks it up. She can't help but rest it against her lips for a moment, then pushes it into a pocket, under the folds of linen, out of sight. It has been up to them, the sisters, to preserve this resource, a tabula rasa for words to come, words too subversive or too precious to be consigned to a screen. The words that will fill these pages, words she will never see, are more expansive and expensive than the scented oil used for the holy rituals, words that could split a life apart. She wonders who will write them. At the doorway, light of head and body, Florentina pauses. When she looks back, the proprietor has taken a knife to the raffia and is preparing to ease apart the sheaf into individual bundles. She remembers once the feather-light sigh of a page on the wind. It had carried her annotations, notes on a book she was reading for school, into the garden. The words, the paper, came to rest by a rosebush. She remembers chasing it, precious for all it was worth, her thoughts set loose by the elements and the breeze. That was really good. <laughs> that was brilliant. Much. I loved that. <laughs> well, um, it just remains for you to uh, provide a prompt for the next guest. I normally say next episode's guest, but it's actually going to be the next guest that shows up in this episode. Okay. So um, the prompt I would like to pass on is flood risks. Excellent. Uh, I'm looking forward to the listeners hearing what that story ends up being. I've heard it and it's fantastic. Excellent. <laughs> um, Rachel, where can people find you online? Um, so Twitter is the best place. So I'm at Rachel underscore novelist. And I have a website which is um, sadly neglected these days, I have to say. But it's, you know, there's stuff on there if people want to have a look. I've got a blog which I, I, I you know, need some updating. But details of all my work is there. So that's rachelconnorwriter.com. Brilliant. And um, you can get Sister Wives directly from get, Crocus? Uh, yes. Yeah. Also Amazon. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a Kindle version as well, which is cheaper. Oh, <laughs> if you're <brilliant>. a <laughs> Exit Earth is available from Storgy directly. Um, and is the Cloistered Soul, is that still available for people to listen to? It's not. Um, so there isn't a broadcast version available to listen to, but I think the script version 
is still on the BBC Writers' Room. Oh, fantastic. So you can download a PDF of the script, so it's not quite the same. You can um, down, Listeners can download it and perform it for themselves. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much. Okay, thank Cheers. you, Cheers. Thank Cheers. you. Bye. <laughs> Um, you, you, you both um, publish books through small presses. Uh, you publish two through uh, Dead Ink and you publish one through Inbooks. I was just wondering about your sort of path to publication and why you chose to go down that avenue and, and how you approach them and, and what happened with all of it. You You've got two, you go for it. Okay, <laughs> you do one, then you do one. Uh, you do okay, nice. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Symmetry. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I. I wrote, I wrote three books before my first one was published by Dead Ink and I tried to get them all, um, that was when I was at university and I tried to get them all published in the sort of traditional way, like approaching agents and approaching big publishers, which is obviously, I didn't realise they don't accept unsolicited submissions from unrepresented authors. Um, and that was three books and in hindsight they're all really, you know, shit, but that's an exercise, right? Uh, and they just got, you know, absolute um, vast rejection. And then, um, and then I wrote the third book, uh, or, or the fourth book really, um, and uh, actually, um, that's when I got to know um, a friend of mine, Aki Schultz, who works with a literary consultancy. Yeah. She um, friends with Kit from Influx, and, um, and we were at one of Influx's uh, readings one night, and we became mates. And then she um, read a draft of that of the book, The Shapes of Dog's Eyes, and said she knew this, this indie press called Deading Books. Um, that it might be a good fit, uh, of course. One of the smartest people I've ever met. She was completely right, mm. um, and they and they took it, and it was. Uh, and just went from there. And it was oh, wow. Really great. Very refreshing. Yeah. To, to be able to speak directly with an editor who's like, yeah, cool, man. I'll text you. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. And also, people like Aki, just basically patron saints that just yeah. come on a cloud of hard work <laughs> and then Absolutely. point at you and say, come on, like, yeah. I know what to do. Yeah. Um, I don't think she's been mentioned on the podcast before, but she really what? is. Like, she's oh. a force of nature in she literature she's, in London. She really so is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so generous with her time and making connections like that, which yeah, makes exactly. it sound like a hideous networking scenario, which it's not. No. She just can see how people's minds and words fit together, I think. Mm. Um, and she cares so much about literature in like a genuine way. She does, yeah. and, 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 and about networking for it, but in an accessible way for people who otherwise may not um, think that they could work in the literary right. industry as well. I right. think they just did a, uh, a, an event at the, the Free Word Centre where TLC's based um, Get a Job in Publishing um, Day. I think that was the hashtag, mm. uh, yes. and, um, and, and it was just about getting uh, as many people involved who might want to get as much information about working in industry as they can. I think a few publishers, um, getting to one of them, um, actually sponsored a ticket. Yes, they did. Yeah. Might not have gotten forward because they trained there or something, which is cool. Yeah, they're doing loads of things like that at, at TLC. It's great. It's really, really good. I, yeah, they do so much good there, and she's she's running the place now, isn't mm. she? She's yeah. Like, Yes. Work she puts in. I remember when I first moved to sorry, when I first moved to London about four and a bit years ago, um, I did a gig at uh, Listen Soft in London, you know, Dom's uh, mm. night, and uh, and I did a, a choose your own adventure story that I'd written uh, for gigs that I used to do, and I pulled Aki up on stage to do the choose oh. your own adventure to be the chooser, really and I had no idea who she was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the patron saint has a patron saint. It's all <laughs> eats itself. That's yeah. fantastic. Because that's another thing is that um, an indicative not only of the kind of reader and uh, champion 
of reading that Aki is, but she will go to these events. Yeah. And that there are so many events going on with people that not only want to listen, but also want to write, you know, have a vested interest. Yeah, exactly. um, but get involved both ways. Um, and I know um, with Influx Press, I think I first met Gary when he came to a reading. It was a, a, a poetry night reading that someone on my MA um, had organised. They very kindly said, oh, I guess we'll take prose writers as well, <laughs> uh, at which point he then regretted everything. But, um, and it was through that that um, Gary asked whether I was writing lots of short stories and then asked whether I was writing a collection. Oh, so okay. again, it's through this... Um, these people that, that are out there and are listening and are waiting... But they know the stories are out there, yeah, yeah. Um, which obviously also has a hell of a lot of effort on their part, but also luck on our part that they're out there um, seeking these things. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that's how uh, Influx found me, um, and I'm very happy they did because, yeah, I also did a creative writing MA and wrote short stories on there. Um, and I would say, not with a view to publish, that would be a lie, um, but I certainly didn't have a collection in mind. I didn't have a sense of where I should be sending it. I sent out a couple to, to Ambit where I think Gary Barden worked at the time. He was a picture editor. He was, was right. Yeah. right. Um, and to uh, what's that journal called where um, Structo. Oh, um, yeah. And so then some, uh, got stuff accepted there which helps with confidence, especially with short stories, thinking like, why am I doing this if I haven't got a collection idea? Um, but it was only when Influx said the word collection where I thought, actually, this is something I can not cobble together, but start yes. kind of shaping somehow. Yeah, because um, I think, I, well, I was going to say, it's no surprise that Gary would have approached you after seeing you read, because I remember, I don't know if you remember, you did a gig up in... Uh, North London somewhere, I don't think it was Wood Green, but it was somewhere up there in like an old, the Caramel Factory or something like oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah, the Chocolate uh, Factory. The Chocolate Factory, uh, right. David Gaffney was reading and yeah. I also read yes. that night and I saw you read and I remember thinking you were brilliant yeah. and I remember <laughs> you, read, you read a story that was written in reverse and you read it reading into a mirror. Right. I think you held a mirror up. Anything for attention, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> like, get to look at myself and read the one. It, it doesn't surprise <laughs> me that... Gary would have approached you after seeing you read oh, it. To ask if I was all right. What's <laughs> going on? Um, no, all right. The answer is no. Channel it into a collection. <laughs> right. Yes. yes. You seem to have lots of anxiety. Let's get the words. Let's, Let's do just, that. That is yeah. the amplifying. Yeah. Right. Yes. Just constantly squeezing people for anxiety. Um, no. They. It's. I. I. I do remember that evening because I hadn't met David Gaffney before, but I'd read his stuff, and I think I'd probably sent flash fiction things into competitions. Yeah which he was judging. So I was there ready to be really angry at him, but he hadn't recognised my genius. Um, then listened to him and thought, damn, he's good. He's, he's very good, isn't he? <laughs> um, and uh, so with that, having spoken about patron saints, the bitterness, no. Like the, the fact that if it wasn't actually for, for live readings, um, I think a lot of one-off short stories and flash fiction, um, there are collections out there and um, they're just not often mainstream. They're not... Uh, put high and visible on the bookshelves yeah. um, so and this says maybe a lot about me as a, as a bad reader but without live events I wouldn't be seeking these things out or I wouldn't be aware of them in the way that I value them now um, so it's anthology for short story writers and for um, 
flash fiction, often what you expect or look or hope to be submitting for are anthologies or for collections or for journals. Yeah. Um, not necessarily your own collection. Um, no, you don't really get you don't really get told that by anyone. You, no. you, the, 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 the sort of the age old mantra is no one wants short story collections. Right, right. But then I think you've sort of proven that wrong a little bit. Like, uh, <laughs> I have yeah, written right. down a list of all of the prizes and all oh. of the books of the year oh, listings don't for trust it. Them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, it, it shows that I think there is an appetite for that kind of right. thing. And it shows there's like, you know, you said you sent some novels out and, and maybe they weren't up to the same scratch that maybe Shape of Dog's Eyes was. But like, there's an appetite out there for your kind of fiction, isn't there? Yeah. And it's yeah. about, you know, you found the right people to bring it out. You found the right people to bring out Yeah, totally. Your and it by luck, um, isn't it? A lot, a lot of it. Because uh, I had no idea back then. Obviously, there's been a huge uh, boost in the number of independent publishers. Of people daring Massive boost, yeah. um, to publish the kind of fiction that um, mainstream publishers won't often take. I had no idea that that was available back then. Yeah, um, and a lot of people don't. Mm. People are starting to realise in the last couple of years that uh, there are other avenues to go down, um, other ways to sort of get your voice heard. People who can uh, help you help you do that, which is really great. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a more refreshing boom than it was like I guess maybe a decade ago when it was more about you know self-publish on Kindle and, right. and all that, and that was the big thing that you could you could do, and that's where all the Mm. You know, where, where you put all the stuff that doesn't fit mm. in a traditional sort of publishing uh, shelf. Yes, mm. I still get asked about that. If I meet people or they ask about, um, and I say oh, like about the books, um, people often ask you, um, oh, did you self-publish or is it a, a you know, Kindle book? Um, and I guess back then, a lot of people don't really say that. No, if yeah, you don't say uh, Penguin Random House, then it's still gonna, it still can be in paperback. And, uh, Happens quite often. Yeah, we used to have a bit more. And I wanted to ask you about the structure of your book because I found it really interesting. Like, it's a very fragmented mm. uh, sort of narrative, um, and it is chronologically quite jumbled up. Sure is. We, the, uh, every fox is a rabbit fox. <laughs> yeah, every yeah. fox is a rabbit fox. I'm talking about. And and I was wondering about like how you went about writing it. Did you? Did you write it as it's written, or were you? So did you have a sort of knowledge in your head that you wrote it in that order and then jumbled it? Did you sort of do it in a borrowed way, like cut and paste it around? I, I, I wrote it. Um, well, there's the sort of the chapters that are um, retrospective, and then there's the chapters that are um, in the present. And I guess I wrote. I based the way I wrote was um, with it, uh, chronologically through the, um, the chapters in the present. So linear in a way, I suppose, um, going back and back. And back and forth, um, and then when I came to edit it, um, I had the manuscript um, uh, hard copy on the desk, and then I had each. I wrote down the names of each chapter and and, um, and what their focus was. And lots of post-its, and I put them all on my cupboard, and then I sort of <laughs> sort of just looked at them. I was like, that one will go there. Those two need to be the same. Um, that one will go in the bin. Um, <laughs> that was quite a nice way to visualise it in a really uh, consolidated manner. I think um, much much easier. Much more refreshing than Shapes of Dog's Eyes, which was more of a sort of kind of weird mash of stream of consciousness that kind of just went from start to finish relentlessly. <laughs> yeah. But I guess you're thinking about it more, is it because it was the second book and you had more sort of idea about what it takes to put a book together? Yes, or? yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I, went, I, I thought it deserved, it needed more, um, more thought um, on, on the structure. 
as well as the story itself. It was a more um, direct story with it, certainly with a more um, thought out outcome. Um, and also I wanted to, I got really invested in the characters and I wanted to do them justice um, as well. So I put, my, put more effort, not to say I didn't have the time to put effort into the last one, but <laughs> put a different level of effort, I'd say, into, into, into that, yeah, for the, new, for the last book. Yeah. And how is it putting a short story collection together? Like how much, how much thought are you putting, when, you, when you're putting it together, how much thought are you putting into what the stories are that you're writing versus just finding stories that fit the collection? Yeah, I mean, um, when Kit Capps, uh, who was the um, editor for the, for the book, um, he asked about what do I want the architecture of the collection to be, what order do I want the stories to come in? Um, and reading it through and trying to find an order, because it certainly wasn't written in, a, in that order or with an order in mind, just the number of themes that, you know, if I was doing, if I was being very um, self-absorbed and writing an essay about it, be like, oh, the themes that emerge are, but it was just hideous, rather than being a, a kind of an interesting thing, it was just like, oh God, they're all about small animals, I can't have those two next to each other, but they're all about it, and they're all about just someone staring at a wall and trying to think abstract, interesting thoughts. They, everyone will see that it's not a thread running through, it's just one big, thick thread, um, and nothing more. Um, so it ended up actually, and this is a very boring, practical uh, answer, about being more to do with story length, really, okay. than uh, thematic or, or um, image-based tropes um, making sense or cohering nicely. So I didn't want to put lots of small, very short stories uh, next to one another because it might feel a bit like scattershot and then a longer one would feel somehow um, baggy and uninteresting. So there's kind of a more, uh, if it was a line, it'd be a bit more jagged and... Um, the kind of frequency of the very very short stories that tried to uh, make a little bit more um, across the whole book rather than concentrated in little bursts if that makes sense um, I know certainly in terms of, of the final contents page I hadn't written I Kit had asked for a title quite early on probably for publicity reasons um, or to kind of make sure that I wasn't like, oh yes, it's called War and Peace. I was like, no, that one that one's taken. Um, but, and so I gave this title, which I thought I liked, then realised I'd kind of put myself in a hole by saying Atrib and other stories, because there was no short story called Atrib that oh. I'd written yet. Um, so that was written a week before publication, I think. Wow. Um, poor kid. That's why he has no hair. <laughs> um, and uh, I am proud of it now, but at the time I was worried that it would seem like this hideous placeholder <laughs> um, just saying like oh well, I'm here and I deserve to be because um, it's like the precious story in there as well yeah, so it's the only right. one that you've not seen relentlessly yeah right the only story you were bored of by that point when you were yeah, yeah the only one I cared at all <laughs> yeah. about no it, it did feel fresh and and but fresh can be you know like a delicious cronut or yeah. like dog <laughs> shit on your shoe so I wasn't too sure um, yeah. how I felt about it uh, towards the end but um, between that dog shit and cronut um, sorry does that mean you have to have uh, parental content on your podcast no, no, now no, right no, okay I think I already have that all right oh right excellent yeah. explicit <laughs> literature uh, um, someone so read a poem of Donald Trump quotes in one episode so, oh, so it's so definitely sorry. explicit that's right. more explicit than dog shit yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> between that cronut Donald Trump and dog shit kind of spectrum yeah, yeah, yeah. um it, uh, it's probably the one I'm most scared of now though just because I'll look at it again and be like oh if only I could winkle that, that, that one out or carve it a bit um, carve or winkle do you do, <laughs> do you do that often do you look back at, your, at, your, at what you've written mm. 
I'll, I'll read through it again. I try not to, I often can't remember what's in it, which is dreadful. I'd love to be able to think like, oh yes, that character, that was, that was who I was that day, and it yes. will never leave me. But I'll, if I do read through it, I will wince more than I'll pat myself on the back. Um, do you read through? No, myself? really. No, unless yeah. unless I um, unless I'm doing a reading right. uh, somewhere, uh, I'll, I'll pick a. I've got a few in, in my one of my copies, uh, mm. you know, uh, with posters mm -hmm. marked out ones that are good to read because it's quite a difficult one. Um, parts of it quite difficult to read uh, in, in, in in public. Um, it's quite a stream of consciousness, isn't it? Yeah, and um, and like parts of like long dialogue and things like that. So I, um, and I, don't, I just I just I try to avoid it because yeah. oh there's a there's a typo or, or oh God, there's, no. an er there's an error. And I was like oh I could have changed that bit. I was like <laughs> to avoid. No. So you things do slip through the cracks, don't they? Yeah. You've not read it in full since. No. It's quite good. You should. Um, <laughs> thank you very I've much. Had good things. <laughs> yeah. I haven't have got the, uh, the the vast list of accolades. Your collection has. <laughs> no, but you've still got. Do you, you, have, the, do you have the list? Did you bring it with you? Did you lose it? You lost it. He lost it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got. I've yeah. got. Totally okay. No, Lolly, you, um, novella at the Saboteur Awards uh, for Shape of Dog Eye, Dog's Eyes, yes, right? Yes. Um, Second place. And long listed, not the Booker Prize as well. That was nice. Yes. Yeah, which is great. Mm. This is a better book. So. <laughs> <laughs> What's that about, guys? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I, I also want to still ask you about. You were. Um, you lecture on children's literature. Uh, I the the amazing thing with with an academic CV is that I can say I certainly taught on that course. Okay. Uh, I did not lead any lectures. Oh, okay. Um, right. I, I wish I had. Uh, no, I was, that was at Royal Holloway. Um, uh, Adam Roberts, who I think is a writer that you, yeah, you yeah. really admire, he um, was, <laughs> which is why I said it, in that yeah, hideous yeah, yeah. name dropping, <laughs> like Adam, <laughs> Dr. Professor Adam Roberts, um, uh, and he was leading the course, um, and Nisha Ramaya, who's a, a poet um, based in London, and I were lucky enough to be the uh, sycophantic um, visiting lecturers who were leading seminars for right. students. Um, and that was a really great course, because a lot of the teaching that I've done has been um, based on creative writing, uh, courses and with those workshops and seminars um, and I haven't taught literature for a long time and being back as a reader rather than talking maybe more about craft um, I really enjoyed it again maybe in a selfish way and my students would be like well I'm glad you enjoyed it because we hated it but it reminded me a lot about why I enjoy literature and I, I do feel sometimes that with my writing hat on or the writing hat on the writing pen it it somehow becomes about um post-its on wardrobes more than it is about what the reader gets out of it mm. again this probably says more about my anxieties and stuff but it was it was really nice to be back reading again and and working out why a book can be teased apart and mm. disassembled rather than seeing yeah. that as something i should be doing um in order for it to be read absolutely i um you can get easily uh, sort of stuck in the mindset that you need to write in a, in a specific way that can be saleable. I remember right. having guest lecturers on my MA um, and even BA in English where we have creative writing seminars and um, industry uh, professionals who worked in, in publishing houses would often come in or sometimes another author or they, not so much the authors, but the pu pu publishing professionals would say, um, you need to be able to think about where your book's going to go, what, what, what shelf stacking all stones, and right. you need to go to your market. This character, yeah. like, the, like um, rainbow arcs and like pyramids, and these, all these things to yeah. make to structure a book in a way that would make it a bestseller. And, 
and, and I have certainly got into a position where I'm like, oh, I should go to this and do this and this. Like, well, I kind of really want to because it's just kind of want to do that. Yeah. You've got to remind yourself to do that. And I, I find that um, I get I get too um, wrapped up around that um, and not write, actually writing anything. Yeah, right. Um, and, and I also at the same time realise um, I've, I've taken a break from actually reading. Mm. So I've stopped doing that, read something, and, be, and you sort of get back into that zone. Then you're like, okay, and then you just go back to writing. You feel a lot better. Yeah, mm. no, exactly. It feels a lot more real. Yeah, and I, I completely understand why lecturers would say, think about your writing career, think about your literary career, and think about the bookshelves, because often... Uh, certainly as a, as a student studying creative writing I thought wait, wait is this indulgent um, why am I doing this mm. but it then swung too far the other way and it was like well you're, you haven't written anything you're not reading you haven't got the fuel or interest in this anymore you're scared you're not going to be published and that is different mm. um, so no I, can, I agree I agree with, with that and um, definitely I found when I'm reading less both my writing is worse and it's, I do far less of it um, so being forced along with my students to read a syllabus and making connections there for the children's literature course I, I really enjoyed. Do you see, like, are there particular authors that you know you can pick up and it'll get you right back into that sort of frame of mind to write? So I know I have that. Yeah. Like, I really do find that with some authors. I'll just read a book and I'll go, oh yeah, oh, I remember how to write a story right. now. Right, right. I find, like, Ali Smith, yeah. I tend to read it, go like, damn you, Ali Smith, and then <laughs> try harder. Um, I, she would probably be my go-to author for that, because she also writes in such a kind of, I don't know, if I say tender and comforting, that makes it sound comfy. Um, it's but it, No, right, it's unsettling, but also so nuanced and, and taught, like a hug should be nuanced and taught, mm. um, that I, there's always something there that will either um, show you how to edit the work that you've just been doing or make you try harder for the writing you're trying to, to go to. So she'd probably be the person I'd, I'd reach for in the bookshop. I don't know. I, I sort of go through phases, um, depending on what I want to write about. Um, so I'll be trying to read around the subject with some authors writing in similar ways. Um, so there's often several, depending on what, um, what, what era I'm in, depending on you know, what I'm writing on. For instance... Um, when I started my, the book I'm working on at the moment, I was um, reading um, The Gallows Pole by Ben, ben oh, Myers. Mm -hmm. It's great. Absolutely outstanding book. Um, and that did that, that, um, did that for me on days when um, I hadn't read any of it or, I'd, or, or, or I was sort of wanted to write but I couldn't really get the mindset and I'd back and read a, bit, read a bit more and I'd be like, oh yeah. Mm. And um, so a lot of contemporary authors, um, Gary's um, collection, uh, Hollow Shores, Hollow Shores is dead published. Fantastic. Yeah, um, that really got me in the mood for... Um, what I'm really interested in at the moment, which is writing with uh, with landscape more in mind than I'd ever sort of done it before. Mm. Um, but over the over the last decade, um, who did I go back to? I've, I've gone back to not for a while. Kurt Vonnegut a bunch of times because okay. um, he's a he's a very whimsical economic um, writer, and I just find that very uh, appealing. It puts you in a good mood and makes you think. Well, I kind of wish I'd done that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I found it quite interesting reading um, reading a trip about like how small the mm. stories are. Yeah. Like I, the, my favourite story in the collection is uh, the one I can't remember the full title, um, the kissing story, or thinking oh, yeah. about kissing from yeah, the yeah. painting. I can never remember the entire. Oh no. Title. No, it's it. all about just thoughts unfurling far too long, so the titles kind of go. With that. But that's what I quite liked about it. It, it takes 
the story take these very, very, very tiny moments mm. and then just interrogate them mm. sort of relentlessly. Mm. Um, a lot of, you know, you, you've got a lot of interest in, uh, in words, um, which yeah, I think we've talked about this before mm. outside of this, about what you did your research, like the research stuff oh, yeah. that you did about trap words. Right. Uh, and I really wanted to, you to talk about this on, on oh, here. Yeah, sure. I love this oh, completely. I'm glad. <laughs> if halfway through you're like, wait, I misunderstood, this is rubbish. And no, 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 it was endlessly fascinating. Oh, well, it, um, this was on my uh, PhD. It was, it was basically about, um, as you say, trap words, so copyright traps that exist within uh, dictionaries and encyclopedias. So if you, Harry, are writing a dictionary, if, with your dictionary, it'd be very easy for Dan just to copy yours because words are words are words. All the definitions should really already exist. So it'd be very easy just for you to pirate the dictionary uh, and um, for Harry's dictionary to become Dan's dictionary and no one would really know. So if you, Harry, inserted a fake word into your dictionary and it ended up in Dan's dictionary, we'd know that there'd been this this theft. Um, so most dictionaries and encyclopedias for this reason have these little made up fictional uh, either headwords, lemmas or, or definitions um, that are just surreptitiously inserted by the lexicographer that will never, they should not be found. The point is that they should be hiding there, lurking. Um, and I was looking at whether you could look at, you could uh, examine them as pieces of fiction. Um, there's, there's one, uh, a name for these uh, fictitious words is a mount weasel, which is a fantastic noun. Yeah, so good. and that's named after um, Lillian Virginia Mount Weasel, uh, who we'll all remember uh, was born in Bangs, Ohio, um, and uh, died tragically, age 33, in an explosion while she was on. Uh, commissioned by Combustibles magazine, and she, this is completely made up, but it was included as well as a, a fake entry in the Dictionary of Biography, um, published by uh, Columbia in 1975. And um, I really like how she's fake; she's entirely not true, but now has a life because the word Mount Weasel has this currency. It's got an official definition yeah, as well. Yeah, thanks to her. Um, and the idea of some lexicographer sitting down and being like, okay, I have to make something up, may as well make little jokes about Bangs, Ohio, and Combustible Magazine and explosions, just to make it neat, just so I keep myself awake while doing this job. Um, and yeah, just this, the thought of creativity going into what is often viewed both from the outside and the inside as a drudgery right like how do we form how do we register language how do we fix language as something to be easily referenced but also indexed rather than the kind of chaos of language that we all use um that was a good bit of radio where i mined chaos yes. <laughs> um but it just that language is something to be kind of plucked out and messed up and communicated in a scrunchy and ridiculous way and that communication is only scrunchy and ridiculous. Um, and when it's set down in something like a dictionary, does it then become something cold yeah. or colder um, because that energy is left in the hole? Um, so the idea that, yeah, uh, dictionaries have these trap streets is, is something that I'm working on now for a creative piece, but um, I, it was a lot of fun to research for that reason. Are you using the words, are you using words in acres like a short story at the moment? Is that the um, well, or hopefully or a novel, um, oh. but we'll, we'll see. Oh, wow. Um, uh, and it it appeals to me possibly for the, the reason you mentioned before about it being small um, and uh, explosive, <laughs> for want of a better word, expansive, expanding out from something tiny. Um, but for that reason, 
the idea of, of writing a novel about it, or idea of writing a novel I'm very frightened of. I don't know, Harry, whether you started writing short stories or always knew that you were you were going to write a longer form. Um, um, or a bit of I started with novels. Yeah. Um, didn't get very. The very first novel I started was uh, got about three pages in. Okay. I was like. Don't know what this is about, so I kind of really stopped and didn't really go back. And then I started working on short stories mm. um, before returning mm. to, to novels. Yeah, and I don't really do short stories that much. Yeah, anymore, which kind of makes me sad. Oh, they'll be back. <laughs> no, I I really honestly admire people that are able to think novel-wise, if that makes sense. Like, do you immediately the, the moment do you start with a kind of an image? And then, then you're like, that will fit into this novel, and suddenly it's it's there. Or? I start with the whole thing, Damn. an image of the whole thing, yeah. um, as I'm watching, um, uh, as I'm watching it. Yeah. Um, of course, that that's not necessarily going to be how it's going to look at the end because things change, that can change drastically. Um, but I start with the whole thing, so um, I've got then this mad impatience to make to, to get it all written down as quickly as possible. Okay. Um, I actually prefer the editing process where I can right. read through and change stuff. It's kind of more fun mm. um, than, than, than actually typing it up. So mm. that's, that's kind of how I started. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's room to play with that. I find um, my admiration for short story writers is that you can condensing a lot of that in, in certain uh, you know types of short stories. Um, that seems very daunting to me. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. Well, we, what we all need to find as writers is like a form that we both because I, I find novelists and short story writers often saying oh but I wish I could do that I'm very daunted but how great so we need to find one that we can just ab- abjectly hate <laughs> and say no thank god I'm not writing a pamphlet <laughs> like, what's that about but we can't <laughs> um, someone bring one to me <laughs> there must be one in this library um, yeah it's I don't know because you write novels and short stories yeah so. both mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. but the the it does require a change in the thought process. It does right. require a completely different approach. Mm-hmm. And often, I know, often I know going in what it's going to be. Okay. Um, I was talking last week and in the last episode to um, Tardy Thompson, um, the uh, the sci-fi author, mm-hmm. and, and he was saying that he doesn't know. His his approach is, you know, I write it, word for word, or is I write whatever the hell I want, okay. and it becomes the length it ends up being right um, mm. and some stuff he said is you know his last book which is a novella mm. uh, started off he thought it was going to be a short story and it just turned out to be longer right and i really admire that i, yeah. I, I love the fact that he can just go into something and it just becomes yeah, the thing it yeah. ends up becoming i can't mm. do that i think i have to know or i at least know the size of something like i know right. i'm telling a big story or i know i'm telling the sort of snapshot mm. of something mm. um, and that determines its, yeah. its length mm. i remember being being very daunted by the idea of having to write a book. If you want to write a book, it's going to be published uh, between the. T- you know, they used to say, or you know, maybe they still do. It's between eighty and one hundred thousand, eighty thousand and one hundred thousand words long. Um, and I remember writing, um, like uh, my first published book was fifty-five thousand or so. Three, technically, a uh, novella. Yeah, I guess and then, like yeah, and then, yeah, and then, and every fox is a rabbit fox with only forty-nine thousand words. Um, and before then, and, I, and the reason I sort of accepted this. Um, is because a lecturer um, said to me, um, "Just it's enough when when you know when you feel like it's enough. That's uh, that's how it should be. Yeah. Um, and that's also what in- independent publishers are really great at. They're not yeah. they're really good at sort of looking at the, at the work yeah. for the value that's in the language as opposed to the value that is that is what it's made out of. Yeah. Right. 
have to look at something like Aaliyah Wagner, right? And the way that Unsung have mm. been, you know, how good they've been with her. And she's only brought out the Bellas. But they've got the depth and complexity of, of you know, any novel. They'll stand toe to toe with Best and stuff. Mm, right. It's brilliant that they, you know, that they'll still publish those things. It's great that Dead Ink is still put, you know, your books out when they're technically novellas. Mm. It's fantastic. Absolutely. But what was that original thought behind um, Every Fox is a Rabbit Fox then? The sort of the initial spark that made you start writing? I went to see a film um, at cinema with a friend of mine called Hyena. It's about, um, um, set in London, it's sort of about um, this small group of um, narcotics detectives um, and getting embroiled in uh, corruption charges, um, and they're just, you know they're confiscating drugs from drug dealers, paying off other drug dealers, going home and taking the drugs by themselves. And there was a, there was an opening. It was just this lonely shot, the shot of this lonely, um, sad-looking detective who's one of the main characters at night, um, walking through his kitchen, a completely bare kitchen with cupboards open, um, kind of mostly empty cupboards, and he's walking out to the balcony, smoking a fag. And I just thought. Um, and it's just like a box of cornflakes in his cupboard. It looks so forlorn. So I thought, I wonder, and I don't know why I thought this instead of detectives, but I thought, I wonder what a hitman has in his cupboard. What's on his shopping list when he's not out shooting people? And a hitman, uh, in, from the research I did, not the kind of things you imagine when you think about them in um, Hollywood. Um, so I started out um, with a working title, um, which was The Secret Lives of Hitmen, um, which actually um, changed pretty quickly into um, being a side story kind of about um, one of the characters related to the main character in yeah. the book. So that was the initial spark. And I actually started that before The Shapes of Dog's Eyes was published. I wrote the first chapter um, in that sort of way. Um, and then put it all in the back burner whilst we did that. And then came back to it a bit later on. Did researching Hitmen lead down very interesting Google searches? <laughs> end up on the dark web, I don't right, yeah. um, I read just a bunch of articles and as much sort of, as much, yeah, um, as much as I could about it, there's not really an awful lot. It's mostly mm. just sounds like people, desperate people getting paid and given a gun or given something to, to do something for someone else. Mm -hmm. um, really, it's not really the kind of thing where you see some guy um, looking really sharp with a mm. briefcase who walks out and takes a rifle and puts it together and climbs in a bell tower or like, mm. you know, go, yeah. <laughs> he so. brought his own bell tower and just <laughs> had <laughs> He's going to build yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll do it in uh, five years' time. Right. <laughs> Long um, contract, right? <laughs> yeah. It didn't really, so I actually, so, so I didn't really get an awful lot out of that, I don't think. Um, which kind of worked because um, the way that the, the, the hitman character in the book it's not really meant to be about that it's meant to be about the, the wild sort of speculation of the childhood mm -hmm. the, the main character as a child wondering what his elusive uh, mysterious um, uncle does for a living yeah. and so he doesn't know um, and that, so it kind of played into that really well mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah I like that about, I really like that side of the book like the, the it's because it's well technically three children um, but it's really sort of two and a ghost but um, endlessly speculating, but it's that childhood speculation about what someone does. Yeah. I really like the way that you, you wrote that and built that in. And I think that, and that that lends itself, it makes the book much more interesting than if it was just about, I guess, about a hitman mm. going about his sort of day to day. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I certainly think so. Um, yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the sister, um, she's definitely my favourite character. She's brilliant. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. She's <laughs> I love her. So, thinking about sort of inspiration behind stories brings us neatly onto the idea behind the podcast, which is um, sort of writing from 
prompts. Um, and I was just wondering about, like, do you ever do that? It sounds like you sort of set yourself things like that sometimes, like experiments in, in, in wordplay and writing and see if you can force yourself to do something in certain parameters. Yeah, yeah, like um, one story in Atrib came about because of um, Visual First, the site where they give you a... Um, uh, so it's, I think it's edited by Pretty Teenager still, um, and it's online, I think visualverse.org, sorry, it's suddenly plugging <laughs> other online resources, um, and they give you every month an image, and they invite, I think, a couple of uh, poets and writers to respond to that image in any way they want, but the um, constraint is that it has to be fewer than 500 words, and you should only take an hour to write it. Um, and the first image they had uh, was the dried out, desiccated um, shell of a turtle. Um, and funny enough, I think Aki Schultz won a competition based on her response oh. to this. Uh, so this is nicely secular. Uh, or it's a world populated by four people. Um, and it's not, no. Uh, and um, trying to write in an hour a response to um, this idea of, of a turtle. Um, led to looking up the etymology of the word turtle and why it was the same as tortoise and from then it just sprouted uh, as a story into into the um, final uh, story in the book um, and often that is what starts it just an, an interest in either an image or a kind of strange coincidence um, and tends to just um, I was going to say fractally but that's not that's far too clever <laughs> um, uh, it just tends to whirl around that and usually come back to that central image in the, in the, the final um, frame to take the cinema metaphor. But um, I, that's why I think I find the idea of plotting a novel so difficult because I, you can only do so much whirling there, I think. For me, that's just that's something I've set myself that isn't true. Um, that it sounds like your first book, that uh, that whirl becomes... Uh, a straight chaotic line and, and is um, doable in a novel I don't know why I call these hangouts about what a novel should be I think it, I think it is yeah that, and that was still that was certainly an exercise mm. um, for me um, and a great, a great a great thing to sort of realise it can be like that as well. mm. you become, things can become so convoluted if you get wrapped up in um, trying to plan and that's what I was doing I've been doing I had been doing for, for too long with the one I'm working on at the moment mm. um, and one day I just thought, well, I've just got to start doing it. Yeah. And when I started doing it, I was like, that's no, okay. Yeah, it turns out. <laughs> it's going to be all right, maybe. Yeah. Um, I don't really set, I don't really sort of take prompts usually, or, or, or not one, prompts, it's hard to say, I get maybe ideas that could be prompted by things in, in, in around me or um, things I see, I guess. I don't really um, necessarily pick, pick anything out. Um, not in the same way as you as you might get prompted by the type uh, by a theme, yeah. Um, like for like for this, um, I have done in the past. I find it quite fun to do that, but I don't sort of do it for myself mm. when I'm trying to work on on, on a book, say. Um, usually because when I have the, the initial idea for that, um, it changes quite a lot by the, by the end, and I don't really want to have to keep it to something if it if it wants to change, um, which is often the case. Do you find the limits you then? I found I've been constricted in the yeah. past by trying to do that um, or I've been able to do it and then not felt that it's kind of met its full potential mm. but that could just be my own shortcomings that I haven't got past as an author so I try, I try not to 
do that. I like to keep myself deadlines. <laughs> with loads, as much space on the side as possible. How long does it take you to, from uh, first conceiving the story to first draft? Um, every fox I had the, I wrote the first few pages of the first chapter, which turned into a different chapter eventually, um, in the beginning of 2015. Mm-hmm. Stopped. So there's a lot of dead time because of the shapes of the dog's eyes. And then in February 2016, started it again, rewrote the first bit, and then I finished the first draft in four months. Oh, fantastic. Oh, wow. Surprisingly long. Mm. Uh, not long, short. Yeah, I was like, short. no, the yeah, other yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> four weeks is usually my usual. And that was really, that was really, so I guess, like, yeah, it's around, I mean, that technically that's a year because it's still, mm. still in the back of your mind if you're not, if you're not working on it. Yeah, it's still sort of percolating, isn't it? Exactly. And then there was an extra an extra seven months on top after, after that, sending it to um, Nathan and another friend of mine um, who works for the Literary Review read, read it and gave some invaluable feedback for mm. it. Um, and then obviously getting it typeset and problems and, and then sending it away for publication. So yeah, a year, roughly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which seems, seems about right. Yeah, for, yeah. I wanted to be shorter, I'm a very impatient writer. <laughs> Do you like writing? Oh, uh, <laughs> I... I do, um, and I do enjoy, I think I do prefer the editing, which I think you mentioned. I enjoy it when, um, I enjoy the first draft. The second draft I dislike intensely oh, yeah. because I, I've started to care. Yeah. <laughs> and then every word you're like, you just need to be buried deep, deep in the ground while no one will see you. But safe, safe in the ground where only I can find you again. <laughs> and you just develop this disgusting hoarding persona, um, which is also... Well, no, I'm speaking for myself. <laughs> you, uh, everyone, to my uh, in my room on my own, um, does this, and um, you start to find that you need deadlines for the for the fear factor, rather than because you ever want to send it to anyone. Um, so That's pride true. becomes horror, becomes shame, <laughs> um, becomes yeah. second draft. <laughs> and then there's that pressure as well. Like, yeah. Um, like a desk with a laptop or notes or something looming at you, and you're like, I'm just gonna. Yeah. I'm just going to go upstairs. Yeah, or, yeah. Um, in someone else's house. Yeah. <laughs> and shut the door. I'm going to the park. Right. So yeah, but I think the prospect of writing actually um, really bothers me. Mm. When I get into it, if I if I can do it, I could, if I could do it, and I'm getting into a really good role, it's like it's obviously really gratifying, and you feel great afterwards. Yeah. But um, a lot of the time, it's it's quite stressful. Yeah. Just trying to just work yourself up to the point. A friend told me when I was having a bad time with um, getting started on the new book, he said, um, "Are you sitting down?" at your desk to do the work I was like yeah but I'm not doing it I'm sitting there for ages he's like about yeah, 90% of the work is just sitting down at the desk alright yeah. I was like thank you he's <laughs> <laughs> like anything extra is bonus I'm like great okay so you've not actually written any of this book yet you've just been sat at your desk <laughs> yeah I've been dictating my thoughts you're not no. in the way I'm, I'd say I'm about almost halfway there oh wow oh. it's going alright maybe awesome. exciting anything you can tell us about it um it's not set in London. <laughs> I don't understand. It's meant to be about... Um, it's meant to be about... Um, without, it's not a Brexit novel. Okay. It's, meant to be, it's meant to be about um, <laughs> the impact of the, the referendum on uh, farming communities okay. um, and the relationship of British people with the land, um, with, the, with the British countryside, which is... Idealised this green and pleasant thing, but it's actually quite you know, sort of inherently historically bloody and violent and sort of frightening place. Hence, the reading about um, yeah, yeah. around the subject by authors like 
Ben Myers and Gary, to name two. Um, that's all I can say about it right now, because no, I don't really have anything else to yeah. say about it. It's not quite there yet, but it's going to be interesting. It sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, so, so what, uh, actually, yes, what prompts were you given? You had... For this, yes. Um, the prompt was, I have killed everything. <laughs> oh, wrong really good for me. <laughs> yeah. I told him, uh, Nathan, my editor, and he was like, "That's great." Yeah, it was a good thing to do, and I was like, "I don't know." And he was like, "Yeah, okay, cool, sweet." <laughs> uh, mine was flood risks. Yes. I think. Yeah, it's quite an interesting one. Yeah, um, deluges. Which was given to you by the, uh, the uh, a third guest for this episode oh. who is being recorded separately. Oh. So yes. Okay, in a water chamber somewhere. Yes. <laughs> so, okay. Interesting. I. D- mm. How much thought did you did you put into what you were passing on as a? Um, uh, what, can I say what I'm going to? You can say what you're passing on. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. Have you got it written down? Yeah, you, you have. Me? Yeah, that one. <laughs> yes, the mould creep keeps growing uh, back. Um, oh. <laughs> which I really like. As yeah. Well. I've got a mouldy bathroom. Fantastic. And I've got, <laughs> Trump, a, I've right? got a very um, a very uh, crap landlord. Oh, good. Come and sort it out. Oh, well. <laughs> it's not my landlord. I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. So you're just venting when you get this to it. Yeah, well, it's also good. You can, that can mean anything, right? Yeah. It's going to be good. Mold keeps going back, yeah. and it does. Yeah, and if there's anything that's good for mold, it's venting. There, it's let's, venting. let's sell mold and venting. <laughs> yeah. as the other sponsorship <laughs> for this podcast. Not having a window in a bathroom is a good idea. Oh, oh God, it's what? <laughs> that's my current life and my my mold life. For memoir, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, oh gosh. Well, that that seems. It's like a face what? Song. <laughs> yeah. Well, that seems like there's some kind of zeitgeist then, like flooding mold, and I have really killed everything. That's, mm. I mean, then, there's an no anthology right now. There's some sort of element of moisture about the whole thing. Yeah. And I watched yeah. the, shape of, um, the Shape of Water last night, so I'm really oh. sort of warm, yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Creepiness. Yeah. She's going to get a lot of mold in that bathroom at the end of that film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the sequel. That was, that was my primary going. concern. Yeah. Yeah. It's like your grouting film. is just demonised. It's kind of shit. Let's get in there. Oh gosh. And think of the names. <laughs> oh, she did not think about that, uh, that cinema. No, no she oh, did God. not. Very upsetting. <laughs> Dry rot. That's what yeah. they should have been worried about. Like, oh. um, yes. And what prompt did you pass on to, uh, to the next? Um, I think with my market forces. Yours was market forces. Right, which they Very can good. play with as a as a pun. I think that's probably too much Radio Four. It's which piped into my room. Which has actually been given to the guest who gave you yours. So you've created oh. a little weird circle Great. within. Oh, oh yeah, deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> see how that goes. Right. Oh. It's a logistical moment. Am I allowed to ask who that is, or is that a it's, Ra- uh, it's a short story writer called Rachel Connor. Oh, okay, brilliant. Very, very good short story. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I haven't recorded the interview yet. Ah. But weirdly, listeners will have already heard it. Oh, this is spooky. Because it's probably going at the start of this. Oh, I like right. that. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the echo chamber. Yeah, <laughs> very weird. Um, do you want to read your stories? Yeah. Yes. In tandem. <laughs> yes. Yeah, weird stereo. <laughs> so we'll do a word each. And yeah. It'll be perfect. It'll be completely nonsensical. It'll make yeah. perfect sense. It'll be perfect. It'll be perfect. Yeah. 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 The listeners have to go home to their editing equipment and <laughs> yeah. prize apart the dovetail joint of the story. Really, yeah. really bringing in, you know, uh, the, 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 re- the listener experience. Yeah, oh, exactly. oh, yes. Collaborative research. Yeah. Uh, who, who wants to go first? Uh, after you, Harry. Okay. Are you ready? Yep. Fantastic. Um, this is called Everybody Should Come With an Instruction Manual. Um, it was my father killed the bar now. He came home one day while I was in the kitchen, hid something white and wrapped in thin cotton torn from a dirty pillowcase in the freezer. One of the family who lived in the box on the side of our chimney 
swooped down as my father was pulling in and crushed itself against his radiator, which had leaked all over the driveway. I don't believe it had been snowing, but for some reason the, the bad insulation caused the frost to grow like mould and consume the kitchen, expand and crystallise every fork and knife in crisp white powder and outside it was night, but in my father's headlights the snowflakes reflected warp speed light faster and faster until something white with a brown speckled back swooped too low chasing mice and died upon impact. It stayed there in our freezer for months, and though my father reassured us that he would get the barn owl stuffed, he never did. Instead he left. Returned every second Friday with playstations and mini scooters and two-a-side hockey in great cathedral parks, pretending to him that I didn't spend long nights awake with strange bedroom window ledges checking his car hadn't gone again, counting seconds into minutes and minutes into hours and hours into days, until eventually there was nothing left between us. The pavement walks and pre-pubescent migraines with aura, the worry, the return to mother, the owl that stuffed the freezer. I was hooked. But still too little. Big enough to catch insects, but you can't stuff them, though. So I just dug up ants' nests instead. In the summer, learned their colours the hard way, got bitten and tasted white bars of soap so thin my mother was barely able to wash my mouth out with them when I swore. By then the owls had evacuated the chimney. I wanted only to spend long hot afternoons soporific in search of field mice in barley and wheat fields, which barely reached my shoulders, terrified as those tiny fragile creatures of combine harvesters lunging through the fields, running and diving for tram lines left by tractor tyres, stinging nettles and the sticks I cut from the trees to shave their heads, six-inch nails, rotting rubber, lying down and in the dry, cracked canyons beneath the harvest canopy, watching long lines of ants rehoming themselves after fleeing from my tyranny. I killed the robin, though not directly, not technically. That was an air pellet fired effectively by a young cousin whose own father was not a fan of killing and therefore hadn't taught him how to do it respectfully. You shot a robin? I asked him. A robin, yes. You must never shoot a robin. Just a robin? Not just a robin, all small birds. But a pigeon's okay. Oh, a pigeon's great. But I don't understand. Then it is me who has killed him. Him? The robin? Of course it was male, they're aggressive, neckpeckers and snappers of vertebrae, murderers for territory, cute on the outside, whimsical, tame, so tame and so ready to trust. I made him bury it. He buried the robin in the ditch beneath the upturned roots of a beach torn down in bad weather, wrenched out of a soil too dry to hold it any longer, too lazy. I sent him home to think about what he had done. While I stayed in the hedgerows and shot pigeons from branches and pulled their heads from their corpses and trod careful as whispers so crows couldn't hear me and killed more aggressively them too. Dirty birds, dirty claws, thick shadows on hedgerows and on fields like clouds, requiring silence and much thought, sneaking, rolling of shoes and no crunching twigs under welly boots. Time passed and I grew, doomed snails to slow death, killed gastropods by the dozen, whose houses I peeled from them, off them, ripped off them with my sister. Not my sister, your sister. Wait, you did this. I stole it. I steal it and kill it for you now after you told me over dinner, shortly after we met last year. You were only trying to move their weight from them, carry it for them, you said, too young to realise that pulling their homes from their backs wouldn't improve them, wouldn't make them weightless and metamorphose into slugs, but reduce them to worms in the sun. Shriveled in white powder, in salt from your tears as you cried, a child, unable to process why they stopped moving, just lay there coiling like witches' toes, then listen, then listing like stricken land ships which cruised through the dreams I used to have about white birds but no longer stored in adulthood. Why the snails wouldn't slither their way out of the sun and on into damp cover of dusk with the curtains closed and loud snail music, 
or they'd just dry up instead there on the patio in the back garden, near the vegetable patch by the shed beneath which your father, who hadn't left, lay rat poison. It's what made me fall in love with you, that incomprehension. And together we got older, but not for long. I didn't kill the crow, though I wish I had. I didn't kill the crow, I didn't shoot it or run it over or trap it in a snare or starve it with slow pleasure. But I stuffed it. I stuffed it for you. And in truth, it was Ted Hughes who put it to death. And how could I compete with that with him, with his stupid glory and riddle gore and grizzle and pith and puddle of piss, terrifying, but kill one not for me, but kill one and fill it with me, from claws to carrion beak, still stained with blood and eyeballs. Presented it to you for a birthday I knew would be my last somehow with you in my life. You just couldn't do it anymore. The late nights around the kitchen table with the birds while I bleated about my father leaving me to random people I'd met in the pub and brought home. Tea total, you put it on the shelf in your new bedroom and I glanced at the bin where the last bird lay, moth-eaten, riddled with mites and the dried remains of the last person to tire you so heavily who'd given it to you before you met, shown off like the carcass of a field mouse impaled on a long thorn by a shrike and left to dry cure in the sun. You said, I love it. You said, thank you. You said, I'll dust it every day. I'll keep this one properly, I promise. Well, I smiled and exalted and revered, with, and with sheer ignorance, I killed me too, right then on the edge of your bed, while you stared into the fake eyes of the crow I hadn't killed for you, but instead caused my own death simply by giving it to you in the first place. That was the end. I threw myself into that wicker waste paper basket on top of the rotten carcass, beside dried up condoms and sperm killed by oxygen, and time and tampons wrapped in tissues from the dozens and dozens of packs you used to keep on your dusty windowsill, which only I used to blow the blood out of my nose. When I left, I hadn't expected to, to ever walk through those doors again, and after it happened, after you called me to meet and expressed your regret that I couldn't work out with you, gave me the stuffed bird back, and I imagined you on that day waiting by the window in your bedroom, holding the crow, and watching me through the window as I got in the car and drove away, the child I never wanted to be, abandoned twice. I took them home, the birds, and the birds all talked to me. They sang heavy and mawkish and brought conversation that I felt no part of, but entertained for years nonetheless. Dead round my table, perching on windowsills and stools and on top of cupboards while round all manner of utensils and with knives chopping rind and sucking ham, I slowly climbed back inside myself, fizzing, dribbling goo from my nostrils, all the birds squawking and coughing feathers like hairballs from cats. The mummified owl, coughing hard frozen pellets that left ice on the floor so that all the others said, oh, you are sort of tenor. The robin tweeting at a thousand revolutions per minute, the sound of its refrain, something about the Tories or Jeremy Corbyn gurgling through an open neck wound and tiny feathers sodden with blood darker than its breast. The feral pigeon bobbing ahead no longer attached to its diseased grey neck in time to Whitney Houston and the crow, who, had, who I'd imagined watching when it was still alive as, as it was laid and hatched and grew and flew and was shot from the sky. Watched still as it fell slowly, spinning awkward and ragged and flapping with slackening control. Still alive, just alive. A battle-worn Jolly Roger cut loose from the top of a mizzen, floating down and raising a minor dust cloud in a stubble field waiting to be ploughed, now stiff and motionless beside the microwave. Plastic eyes blind and unmoving, and leg legs unpicking, and long carrion beak black and, un and pinned open. Thin tongue become a maggot itching to writhe an exclamation, a whole argument locked inside an organless body that wanted to scream, why did you leave, to everyone who had left, but couldn't. Because that's a stupid question, and the maggot knew it. So the crow sat in silence and contributed no more to the party than presence. 
while my other feathered guests talked and talked and talked louder than talking, shouting or shrieking with dry mouths and gack mouths, guffawing, while crust loosened from avian nostrils like ancient hillsides, dried and decomposing, left open wounds on the flimsy cartilage inside. Too long I watched, too loud they got in goading and coaxing and go on, go on, too much about feelings and how to fix things with people who don't want to be fixed and why no one will understand anyone like anyone does until the day we all come with instruction manuals at least. I'm going to bed, I said and stood. Close the window on your way out, would you? Sure, they said as one. But we'll all be back tomorrow. <laughs> and that's that. That's fantastic. That was great. Thanks. God, you wrote such a wonderful rhythm to it. Like, I, sentences. I, I didn't read too fast, did I? No. Okay, I was trying not to. I was told, um, you told me this, Aki. Um, <laughs> read as though you're you, in your head you think you're saying it really slowly but it comes out the right pace okay that's what yes. I yes. to do that that's always been the rule I've, uh, I've heard as well yeah no it was yeah you read well that was great thank you and more mould hey yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> big theme at the moment yes yeah Yes. Someone I know has some taxidermy that's going mouldy, and that's the most frightening. Whoa. You're like, I'm over the, the fact that this is dead already, that's fine. Like, mm. in fact, there's something kind of stoic about it and, and beautiful and fragile. And then for it to go mouldy and have mites in it, I'm like, no, yeah. no, you've had your life. <laughs> Stop yes, now. Like, yeah. <laughs> Stop doing that. It's gross. I found a bat once, and I was like, oh, this bat look, looks like it's injured. Um, and I was like, it's, it's just moving a little bit. No. Because um, you can see through bat skin, and I look really closely. Guess what it was full of? Maggots. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, so stopped, stopped. Um, well, moved on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, gosh. Not great. I'm not sure I'll move on. <laughs> I'm <laughs> so stuck sorry. there forever with that cat. How does taxidermy go? Read a story about it. It's a problem. Yeah. Let's go. No. More, more. Taxidermy going mouldy. I don't know. I think if you don't treat it properly, if it doesn't have the I think right. The dust mites just get involved. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it starts to sort of rot. Just deteriorate into like. like yeah. As far as I know. Yeah. My friend did a taxidermy class a couple of years ago and he did a mouse and he gave it a little top hat and Jointy. he was doing jazz hands. Of course. Nice. Um, it's quite impressive. God, so if that top hat starts tilting forward as mites generally yeah. just kind That's of fire it down. We need to go into the Natural History Museum and replace all the rodents with top hats and yeah. jazz hands. <laughs> <laughs> forest line Oh, <laughs> bloody hell. <laughs> like in Babe. <laughs> <laughs> just like Babe. Yes. Like. Exactly like that. Babe in the city, colon, <laughs> the taxidermy years, yes. like Jesus. Oh. Wow. <laughs> Childhood uh, destroyed. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Let's give back. <laughs> um, this is Flood Risks. She was reading, or trying to read, a newspaper article over someone's shoulder. The tube swayed, the tube train, so everyone swayed. Elbows in her back, stretched in unshadowed lines of damp evening office wear against her ear, the usual. Her thoughts were everywhere, the usual. She had read earlier in the day that over 47 million litres of water are pumped from the London tube each day, enough to fill a standard leisure centre swimming pool, 25 metres by 10 metres, every quarter of an hour. And they had been in between stops for a quarter of an hour, and she had only had the same sliver of a view of the same newspaper page in all that time. Everyone standing on the tube had their knees locked in the same, oh, tube train tension. Everyone sitting clutched their bags and looked downwards so the standing passengers would not catch their eye. Everyone was too warm and shameful and swaying between tenses, between stops. Standing or sitting, holding newspapers or trying to surreptitiously read newspapers, everyone was also making the same sign cluck when the train announcer apologised for the delay. 
The subheading to the newspaper article that she could read ran, Fortunately, no seeds were damaged. She could not see the actual headline. She tilted her head and swallowed some of London's recycled air. Seed, seed, seed. The subheading, Fortunately, no seeds were damaged. Seed, seed, seed. The brakes on the train made a panting seed, seed, seed noise. Fortunately, no seeds were damaged. She read it again. She liked gardens and granary bread. Seeds, she had seeds in her teeth this morning on the commute in when the crush smelt slightly more like rush shampoo. Although she still could not read the story, she was glad that somewhere no seeds were damaged. She thought that that should be a subheading for every news story. For example, Harry Potter opens on New York's Broadway. Fortunately, no seeds were damaged. County cricket, Hampshire, Derbyshire versus Middlesex and more. Fortunately, no seeds were damaged. Seeds were smooth and small and hissed en masse, she imagined. As a teenager, she thought, she kept thinking. As a teenager, she had once gone out with a boy who had played in a band. And the band and the boy were not important, but he had a tenor sax and a didgeridoo and a rainmaker and all kinds of alert Freudian slippery anguish instruments in his bedroom. And she remembered when they broke up, she sawed right through the inverted commas rainmaker stick, the tube of thick dried cactus that sounded like a sweet storm when you put it on its end. And she had found that the stick was filled with seeds and thorns and pebbles. She thought it was a seed in her teeth this morning. She hadn't actually looked. She had tested its edge with her tongue between her teeth and the slimmest curve of her little finger's nail until it winkled free. Perhaps it had been a pebble or a thorn rather than a seed. She thought about, as she swayed, the number of teeth in this tube train. She wondered if anyone knew. Okay, so Victoria Line, eight carriages, total capacity around a thousand, Seated, 250, standing, 750. The train kicked into life and swayed a little more. And the headline on the article shifted into her view over some pinstripes. The headline ran, Doomsday Seed Vault Meant to Survive Global Disasters Breached by Climate Change. She remembered that she had once collected all of her teeth and buried them. She thought that maybe the tooth fairy could give her a better price if she had them in one big, big bulk. And she had put them one by one into the tumble dryer because she thought that the tooth fairy wouldn't want wet or damp or blood dried teeth. And she remembered that the tumble dryer had broken and she could never tell her mother why. But she had found all the teeth in the lint drawer later and she had brought them together in her hands and buried them, thinking that they might sprout. An announcement on the tube platform told her to always carry a bottle of water. She should have. She felt dizzy as the train kept swaying. She read on. The seed bank designed to preserve the world's crops and plants in the event of global disaster isn't prepared to withstand the greatest global disaster facing our planet, global warming. The train swayed again. She kept her eyes trained on the piece of paper. Melting permafrost on the Norwegian island of Spitsbergen, where the Svalbard Global Seed Vault is located, has seeped into the seed bank. Seeped, said the train's brakes. Seed, she said to herself. Someone caught her eye when she said it. She kept reading. It raises questions of how the structure, how the, the vault, will be able to survive in the future as the earth keeps warming. A normal adult mouth has 32 teeth, she thought, normally, which, except for wisdom teeth, usually have erupted by the age of 13. She doesn't know why she associates the word tooth with the word eruption. The cool taste of mouthwash, the word mouthwash, seed, seed, swilling, 
the way that young people's teeth take over one another in their skulls, across their gums, popping out. She thinks about Pez dispensers and fresh things like mouthwash. Memory of her breakfast and it seeds between her teeth crams in and all the sighing commuters seem to sigh in time with one another as she sways and they all sway. Unusually warm temperatures in the winter have caused rain, she read, and the permafrost has been melting. It was not in our plans to think that the permafrost would not be there and that it would experience extreme weather like that, said the person from the Norwegian government who owns the vault. She thinks of a vault filled with seeds. She thinks of all the seeds and all the teeth on the tube train. She sways and the paper sways and the paper turned, the page turned, and she imagined the tube filling with water. Then she imagined it filling with seeds. She was taller than most, and she'd have the final inches of air in the ceiling if it filled with water or seeds. She felt awful for thinking like this. She felt awful for reading the word doomsday on a tube train. It felt irresponsible. She imagined a shark weaving its way through the press of commuters, through the press of a commuters in a tube train filled with water, pressing on, getting from A to B. She did the calculation. Say there are today 986 people on the tube train, on the Victoria Line, and we all have a normal amount of teeth, say that's 32. That would be, and she's always been good at maths, that would be 31,552 teeth in this tube train, so many seeds to get stuck in there. And the carriage swayed and the lights burned a little brighter suddenly, and she felt her pupils in her eyes tug a little inward as the newspaper page turned again and a new headline stacked up in her thoughts and bloomed full-blown. Sorry, I stuttered a little bit. That was um, excellent. Yeah, just tube trains, what's that about? Too much commuting, I think that's what's going on. I really hope someone listens to that story on the tube. Mm. Yeah, and then just vomits on <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, No. Yeah, we're not going to be calming people down on this no, um, no, podcast. No, that's not the intention. One of those what soothing... Yeah. <laughs> mindfulness happy hour really. is yeah. anyone in the future going to come back and say oh these are two authors that I go back to read because it's, it's, you know, it gives me sort of sense of comfort yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. sure. yeah settle down with a nice cup of tea put yeah. <laughs> my feet up and just cry oh so where can people find you online um Constantly. If you wish to, <laughs> oh. uh, to find you. Um, uh, on Twitter, at uh, Giant Rat Sumatra. Um, I'm uh, usually there. <laughs> um, not to my credit. Uh, yeah, but that would, that's probably the best place. And you can get a trip from Input Press. Yes. Me, can't you? That'd be wonderful. Yes. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at uh, HCA Gallon. Um, and you can buy um, Every Fox is a Rabbit Fox, All the Shapes of Dog's Eyes directly from. Um, Tellingbooks.com if you so wish. Excellent. Harry Neely, thank you. Thank you. All right. That's it. That's the show. Uh, that's the series. Um, wow. Thank you so much for making it just this far in the episode itself. Uh, I know that was a really long one, but I really wanted to get all of those writers um, talking about their work um, and, I, and I think it was really worth uh, worth it um, you can find uh, old episodes of the podcast on iTunes on SoundCloud just search Paper Chain Podcast or you can go to the website thepaperchainpodcast.org or just come and chat to me on Twitter at Paper Chain Pod thank you so much to all of the guests we've had uh, on this series um, they've all been brilliant uh, there is still one more episode of the show to come it's 
it's a lost episode it's episode uh series two episode eight and it will be showing up soon keep an eye out for that uh keep an eye online for when i announce it um the paper chain podcast is produced by me daniel carpenter um music is by silence is sexy and the logo is by blank slate media thank you